0: Our first scripture reading this morning comes to us from the Psalms, Psalm 139, verses 1 to 12. Let's listen together for a word from God. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? or? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light around me become night, Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. The word of the Lord.
1: Today's second scripture reading is taken from the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 to 22. Listen to what the... Spirit is saying to the church. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down in that place. And he dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth, the top of it reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And the Lord stood beside him and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and in your offspring. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob woke up from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is a gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning, and he took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, "'If God will be with me, "'and will keep me in this way that I go, "'and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, "'so that I come again to my father's house in peace, "'then the Lord shall be my God, "'and this stone, which I've set up for a pillar, "'shall be God's house.' And all that you give me, I will surely give one tenth to you. The word of the Lord.
2: Please pray with me. May the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Jacob came to a certain place and stayed there for the night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down. And he dreamed there was a ladder, a better translation, I think, for that Hebrew word is stairway the top of it reaching to heaven. This is before Led Zeppelin, even. And that goes back pretty far. (laughs) And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And as I said with the kids, if I had my head on a rock for a pillow, I'd have weird dreams, too, probably. We're looking at Jacob once again. The Jacob cycle in Genesis is one of the most amazing uh, literary offerings anywhere of any time. Last week we looked at the story of Jacob's birth as the youngest of two twins and how even from the beginning he came out of the womb, Rebecca's womb, holding on to his older brother's heel. And that's what Jacob means, he who supplants, who replaces. And Jacob does does just that when they were kids. He tricks his brother into selling him his birthright as the older son. He sold it to the younger son, Jacob, because Esau was hungry one day. And then a little bit later, and right before this passage this morning, with his help of his mother, Rebekah, uh, Jacob disguises himself as his hairy older brother, Esau, and tricks his now blind older father, Isaac, into conferring the blessing that rightfully belonged to the older brother Esau on to Jacob. So Jacob is sneaky, to say the least. And as we consider this text this morning of the stairway to heaven, I'd like to just um, ask you or invite you to consider this question. What is it that, that you expect from these classic biblical stories, these narratives, which are so famous, um, is it simply that these are stories we should know to be culturally literate? Because I think they are, but is it just that? Or maybe in these super familiar stories, maybe does God have something to say to you and to me that really matters? And uh, so it's probably obvious. I think the answer to that also is yes. This is why I think these stories are so famous, so timeless, is that God can speak to us today out of these ancient, ancient narratives. Well, for starters, for our purposes today, whenever you're considering Jacob, it's important to recall just who this guy is. Jacob, who later gets the name Israel, and Israel simply means wrestles with or strives with God. Jacob is a mama's boy. He is cunning. Uh, We would say the word sneaky, right? He's sneaky smart. Um, He's opportunistic. He is selfish at times. Jacob is not a fighter like his older brother who's buffed and big and kind of outdoorsy, Jacob would rather cheat you than try to give you a beating. And we all know people like that. We all They're usually class president or class clown or something like that. Um, we're all like that at times, a little sneaky, a little underhanded, a little opportunistic. So with that in mind, um, and I don't mean to brag, <laughs> uh, which is actually a terrible uh, preaching strategy. Uh, it's never a good idea to make yourself the hero of the story, uh, but here it goes. When high school started for me, I had just moved with my family from Florida to Washington State. In Florida, football is a religion. I don't know if you know about that. Uh, it's even more popular, at least more people attend, than the Christian church, right? It's crazy down there, and that's where I grew up, and uh, football was my thing. In fact, I think from the first five years I played on organized teams, I never lost a game. Uh, And it was amazing. They would fly us places and take us in buses. And I wasn't even that old. It was incredible. Uh, But then we moved to Washington State. And when I got there, I learned to my great disappointment that my high school that I would be going to, over the past six seasons, had won exactly six games. (laughs) And I think my math is correct when I say that's an average of one game per year. The team was so bad, in fact, that the brand new coach picked brand new me, a 15 year old who had just moved in, to be the quarterback. Because we were bad, right? Uh, it's a position I'd never played before and I wasn't particularly good at. I was just good at running away from people. So the new kid who didn't know anybody, a terrible quarterback on a terrible team, running for his life every Friday night in front of, and i got to give them this, about three or 4,000 people every Friday night, no matter how bad we were, in a huge school filled with working-class kids, farmers who'd already been up three or four hours when school started, seven it seemed, giant dudes with beards and tattoos before regular people got them. And I'm pretty sure a couple of the guys on my team that year had children of their own somewhere. Um, this is what I was doing, and I might as, well just, you might as well just put a big target on my back. That's the setup. If you think that's sad, by the way, thank you. But it got worse, because at the end of that first terrible season, and by the way, we got better, uh, and I moved a position, and it worked out pretty well. But um, at the end of that first terrible season, I learned the even more unsettling news, <laughs> given who I was in that place that all sophomore boys had to take yoga. I mean, had to take wrestling. And I didn't want to wrestle anybody ever, especially people who were, as we used to say, laying for me, right? Because they thought it would be good to cut me down to size, to welcome me to school. Um, And that is why I went to the library. Back in those days, you had to go to the library to do research and wrote up a presentation which I took to my new principal saying that I thought it would be a good idea if I learned about Eastern religions and would be allowed for the very first time to be the first boy ever to take yoga with the girls. The boys did wrestling. The girls did yoga. The yoga was way more attractive to me. They accepted my proposal. And I'm here today to, 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 to tell the story. Sometimes when you can't beat them, as Jacob shows, and sometimes we show in our own lives, you gotta outthink them. You gotta strategize. You have to just get a little bit a step ahead. Because everybody's competitive. The father wrote in to the Reader's Digest, which for those of you who are under my age, it's a magazine that people read with interesting stories about life. This guy wrote in with a funny story about his young adult son aptly named Chad. Chad, apparently, according to the father's letter, was a young man committed to a nonviolent ethic of living. So it took his dad by surprise when his son in college chose to fulfill his physical education credits with a course in the Korean martial art of Taekwondo. Now Chad's partner in this Taekwondo class was a gentle young woman, uh, a friend of Chad's named Mackie, And Mackie also was a believer in a non-violent ethic and way of living. And so she and Chad worked very well together throughout the semester doing their Taekwondo. They were partners. Their moves were always gentle with one another. And they sort of had tacitly agreed that they would learn as little of the martial arts part of Taekwondo as they could and focus more on the meditative Eastern religion part. But on the day of their final exam, Chad and Mackie his partners, faced off against one another for a demonstration, Chad thought, of their taekwondo moves that they'd learned. And all of a sudden, at the very end of their demonstration, Mackie, who was half his size, threw Chad to the floor and began pummeling him with some perfectly executed punches and kicks. And lying on his back, Chad looked up at his so-called friend Mackie and asked what she was doing. And in her gentle, nonviolent way, she whispered in his ear, I'm getting an A. <laughs> <laughs> it's a competitive world and, and we can't help it sometimes. One of my favorite Seinfeld episodes have George Costanza dating a woman who has a young son. So George tries to be a loving, giving, normal boyfriend but it's just not in his nature. He goes to the boy's birthday party in a New York City apartment, and he meets a clown named Eric, played by the actor John Favreau, it's hilarious. And they get into an argument about Bozo the Clown because Eric the Clown has never heard of Bozo the Clown, and George can't believe that anybody had not heard of Bozo the Clown. And in one of my all-time favorite Seinfeld lines, Eric says to George, I don't get it, man. You don't get it. You're living in the past, man. You're hung up on some clown from the 60s, man. But that argument brings out the real George. And then as that argument ends, he smells and then he sees a little smoke in the kitchen. And he screams, fire! And then George Costanza knocks over a woman on a walker Eric, the clown, and several little kids to get out of that apartment first. Because over time, all of us do this. We put ourselves first. George just is more honest about it. It doesn't matter how good of a person you're trying to be. I think is really what the stories of Jacob tell us. When it comes down to it, to get rid of insecurity, which we all live with, We all are willing to push other people aside and to rationalize that, to put ourselves first. But Jacob finds out, as George does, as you and I do, that life is bigger than anything he or any of us can control. In fact, that's not what makes Jacob such a compelling character in scripture, the fact that he is smart or sneaky or opportunistic. What makes Jacob compelling in scripture is that he's real, he's not perfect. He is a fully rounded character. He is a real person, a regular guy. And Jacob's life of faith, which the Bible gives so much space and time and attention to, This relationship with God that he sticks with through ups and downs shows that being perfect, being good, is not what it's all about. It just isn't. So if Henry takes anything from this worship service and especially our baptism of him a little bit earlier, that's the first thing I'd like, I'd pray that he takes with him. Life is not about being perfect and being good and being someone who achieves and achieves and achieves and is always getting ahead. Because if that's what it's about, it's just a setup for frustration. Because we're all like Jacob. We're all fully rounded human beings. And we're not perfect. So look how fast, it just takes 28 chapters for this entire Bible to get real, right? Isaac, Abraham's son, is so frustrated, it sounds like so many families I know, including my own. Isaac, Abraham's son, is so frustrated with his younger son Jacob's behavior, he sends him away, he washes his hands of him. Esau, the older twin brother, is so angry and humiliated, he wants to kill his twin brother. So Jacob leaves. He is split, maybe forever, we don't know until we read further, from his older brother Esau, and maybe his father as well. Esau wants him dead, so if he's lucky, Jacob will never meet him again. He's emancipated by his father. Isaac can't control him. He's willing to cheat and swindle his own dad. And so Jacob, that sneaky, resourceful, very human person, is on the run. And as we've heard, he stops for the night. He uses a rock for a pillow and an interesting story unfolds. Do you see yourself here at all? I mean, do we have any families like this represented this morning? Jacob takes a rock and makes it a pillow. He's gonna make this work. That's how we all approach things. I don't care. And of course, he dreams about a stairway reaching all the way up to heaven and these messengers of God, these beings that facilitate epiphanies, right? a meeting between the human and the divine they're going up and down and at the top of that stairway, that staircase is God the divine self saying I will keep my promises to you your descendants will be like the dust of the earth I know it doesn't look good now but trust me That's the second thing I hope that we, as his church family, are giving to Henry this morning. The assurance that God will keep God's promises to him. God is going to keep God's promises when Henry or you or I arrive at that moment when we realize that we're not in control. When we're not trying to be like God as the serpent tried to convince Eve we can be. Renita Weems is the first African-American woman ever to earn a PhD in Old Testament studies from Princeton Seminary, Um, and she gets it when she's analyzing this text about Jacob's ladder this morning. Weems writes, I don't think it's so much what Jacob does, it's what life does to him that makes his story so incredible. For me, Jacob is someone who seems to take things into his own hands. But at the same time, he's a person also who is fated, And I think that is the human predicament. Life is not about being perfect. Life is not about having everything under control. Life is about living, going up and down and all around and never ever letting go of the God who gave you life in the first place. When Jacob awakes from this dream this morning, he says, definitely, surely, the Lord is in this place. And I didn't know it. It's a really powerful short sentence in scripture. Jacob is afraid. Jacob is overawed. He says, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. Bethel, the gate of heaven. That 's the third thing we want to give to Henry this morning. God is going to meet Henry in some of the strangest, most unexpected places he or any of us, especially as parents, will ever be able to imagine. as parents, we think it'll be you know when they get into the right college or when they finally find the right person or when they score a goal on the soccer field, but that's not really it it's really in the troublesome times, the out-of-control times, the lonely times where God really finds us. And God does meet each one of us in some strange places, some wonderful strange places, like the birth of a child, like the top of the Alps, which my family and I just saw the other day. They're still amazing, by the way. God meets us, and it's very obvious when we're laughing with old, dear friends, but God also meets us in other places. Soldiers tell of meeting God in a foxhole, right? Parents tell of meeting God by the bedside of a sick child. I hear people tell me they met God when they were laid off, when they went through a divorce, when they got that diagnosis that they hoped they'd never get. People tell me that just as they meet God in the best unexpected, uncontrollable circumstances, they also meet God when the worst thing that could possibly happen, happens. The thing we've been afraid of all our lives, the things we fight against with every ounce of strength and ingenuity and cunning and smarts that we've got. It's in those places that like Jacob, you and I are gonna meet God too. That's where Henry's gonna meet God moments and places where for better or for worse, it's pretty obvious that we're not God. And we can't be in control. And that that reality, that realization is what opens us up, I think, to a truly life-giving divine encounter. The trick is to look for those places even when you don't have to. The trick is to pause a little bit when those moments come by. And most important, the trick for a life of faith is to find our way back to those moments of vulnerability, of absence of control, where nothing about what we've done or might do really matters. Because in those moments, they don't. None of that really matters. So that's the fourth thing. I hope that Henry takes from our baptism celebration of his life and God's love for him today. A life with God is about finding your way back over and over again to that place where you don't really have control. That's what worship is. That's why we have a little prayer of confession at the very beginning of every worship service just to remind ourselves, especially type AAA accomplished people like in this community, that A life of faith is about being honest and real. It's the one place where we can be honest and real, it seems. And it's simply about trusting that God will keep God's promises to us, and that we don't have to keep those promises ourselves. I remember when I didn't have to go to church, before I got paid to be up here, the worship services that meant the most to me always were the ones I almost didn't go to. There was always something inside. Maybe it was regret, remorse. Maybe I was just up too late the night before. Maybe I felt like I had too much to do. And if I went, in spite of all that, kind of grumpy, I always left feeling inspired and elevated in a way that I didn't on normal Sundays. Jacob took the stone he was using of as a pillar. He used I mean, as a, as, a, as a pillow and he changed it into a pillar, a pillar of gratitude. He poured oil on it as a sign of blessing and sacrifice and he called the place Bethel House of God. The great thing about the house of God is it is portable. It is movable. It's like my parents who for about four or five years were full-time motor homers. It goes where you go. As long as you're open to meeting God, as long as you are willing to acknowledge that you are not always in control, and more importantly, you don't have to be, you're in the house of God. You can take a rock and make it into a pillar. Hugh O'Donnell, who is an artist and performance artist, has this to say about this story of Genesis. I'll use his words to conclude this morning. I think of Jacob as a real hero in the story because he's somebody who is cursed with this incredible invention and intellect And all that keeps him awake at night. He can't get any rest. Can't get any peace on his own. And God comes down and gives Jacob some help. In his exhaustion and his normal human anxiety, God actually shows Jacob the pathway to heaven. That's the fifth and final thing we want to give Henry this morning. And I'm sure... He's been taking notes, wherever he is, right? Henry, or just substitute your own name in here. Henry, you don't have to be like Jacob. You just have to be yourself. That's enough. It's always enough. Life's not about being perfect. God is going to keep God's promises to you, especially when you stop trying to control everything in your own life god will meet us in the strangest most unexpected places a life with god is just about finding your way back to that place again and again and again and finally you don't have to be like jacob just be like yourself please pray with me loving god we thank you for your presence and promise with us in every moment of our lives Bless us as we seek to be real, authentic people in your presence every day of our journey. In Jesus' name, amen.